Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Today, I talked to Google's Jason Scott about launching Google's first black founder and woman founder startup accelerator. We talk about the advantage of thinking about inclusivity early on in the life of a startup with data, product design, and the team in mind. We touch on what it means to be an accomplice rather than an ally when supporting underrepresented communities in tech and being willing to take risks. Jason also recommends insightful steps to figure out how to have a fulfilling career while being your true self at work and also what he's excited about in 2021 with respect to innovation and entrepreneurship. No spoilers, but an army of Whitney Houston clones is mentioned. So let's get to the interview. Hey, Jason. Hey, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. That's great. So what does that mean, head of startup developer ecosystems at Google? Yeah, I know I recognize that it is purposely vague. Um, basically, what it means is I at Google help bring the best of Google's people, products, and programs to entrepreneurs and really try to make it um, easier for those out there starting companies to, to do so successfully. And so one question for you to start off. What would you say is one thing that has surprised you about yourself during this time of COVID? Yeah, it's funny because I, I don't know if I would say surprised is surprised it surprised me as much as it surprised other people about me but um i think for me i've really leaned into my introversion over the last uh -huh. year or so i think um, a lot of us have um and i think for someone who um i love hosting events i love i used to do event management and things like that um part of my career i think a lot of people are surprised that i i enjoy kind of not necessarily having to commit to large gatherings of people and large events um in person um and i've actually really leaned into it honestly and it's been a great time to to do a lot of self work, I would say, and mm -hmm. really kind of focus on kind of uh, the, the personal incubation, I guess, in that way. Yeah, I've, I've really been impressed with people that have uh, emerged from this having learned new languages, how to play instruments. I just did a lot of binge watching. Yeah, I wouldn't say I've, I can't work with any of those new skills, yeah. uh, but I will say I have done a lot of just general kind of planning, right? And, I, and being able to just really take a second to, to both do a retrospective and prospective on your life. That has been a, a honestly a personal advantage uh, or a personal kind of a um, benefit of, of being trapped in my, my apartment, yeah. my small yeah. New, York New York City apartment over the last month. Or yeah. Year. Well, planning's good. That's the first step to doing. So tell us a little bit more about um, your role and how you kind of got started working with AI-based startup. Was it intentional or what pushed you towards it? I like to tell people uh, that for me, it's always been about looking at what am I good at? What can, what do I love? And kind of what will someone pay me to do? And honestly, as I think about that Venn diagram, like what sits at the center of that, on, honestly, are tech startups and connecting people um, and, and helping them solve their problems. Um, so candidly, I took a risk joining Google. I had never worked at a company this big, um, but it was really, a for me, a platform to be able to do that, really support entrepreneurship, support tech, um, going back to my roots of tech um, and my undergrad roots, especially as a um, bioengineer, um, and then really connect people connect and help them solve their problems. So um, it was a little bit serendipitous, honestly, but 
lean fully into it <laughs> once once you once okay. things start to, um, and I enjoy it honestly it's been it's been great. So as far as developing these startups at Google and helping them in their growth stage and thrive, what are the different types of startups that you try to support? So I would say what's awesome about kind of the world we live in today is everyone's leveraging technology at some capacity, right? You go to a soul cycle and they have data and, and user data and apps and things like that, right? Like there are no businesses that really can't be advanced and accelerated in the technical capacity. So it's really, for me, it's about um, access and, and really looking for those founders that are in these interesting pockets of the country doing cool work and have in innovative solutions and then really trying to help them from a product standpoint or understand their data and think about when should they think about AI, machine learning, um, but also things like customer acquisition or even like people management in a quantitative way. There's almost no startup that can't be advanced in the technical capacity. Mm -hmm. And I think it, a lot of startups don't realize that they are oftentimes sitting on a wealth of either data or um, kind of opportunity with respect to data right. um, that we're trying to kind of show them, um, show them the path that, to how they can leverage it in a way that's both meaningful, but also responsible. In the last year, you've had a couple of interesting cohorts that you've done. One was black founders and one was women founders that you focused on specifically. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about and why this was the moment for it? Yeah. So again, I think I would, I would preface it by saying in my career, um, I've always tried to, 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 I've always just been really excited about creating access for, for founders that don't necessarily have access. Um, they're not necessarily sitting in Palo Alto. They didn't go to Palo Alto High School right across the street from Sand Hill Road. Um, and it's for me, I've always both been impressed by these founders, but also found it really gratifying to kind of uh, provide that access to them. And um, so leading into last year, I had already planned on doing a Black Founders Program and a Women Founders Program, and honestly, many other programs focused on um, kind of traditionally underfunded and under-resourced founder populations and kind of on the on the back of uh, last June capitalized on that moment that that and the attention that was being placed on uh, both racial and gender equity um, in the US and and use that to create even more visibility for that work. So I was really excited to launch Google's first Black Founders Accelerator, first Women Founders Accelerator in the, um, North America last year and um, continue to do those cohorts in the future, honestly, because it's really awesome to meet that founder based in Lexington or based in, uh, uh, we had one in Saskatchewan, Canada, who they're so far removed from Silicon Valley or from kind of- you know, the power BC centers. Funding. Exactly. And they, and it's awesome to see that they're still creating these businesses that are profitable and honestly doing really, creating really innovative solutions, despite not having the same kind of serendipitous like coffee shop encounter with mm. XYZ from Sequoia or XYZ from Google, right? Um, so it's, I'm excited to continue that work um, and gratefully um, have gotten a lot of support and investment from the ecosystem broadly um, because the attention is on these topics um, right now and just hopeful that um, it will continue to be. And once they do these cohorts and they graduate, what in terms of networking, or I imagine that there is a, a strength in the networking and the support in the community that moves forward for them. Is that something that Google continues to foster? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that that keeps me, or not the only thing, but one of the things that keeps me at Google is that is the power of the network. Um, kind of Google has, has a reach that is, that even when I was in venture, very few in investment funds, very few incubators have the same sort of reach as Google and, and the ability to connect people 
in a global capacity on a global scale. So for my founders, yeah, the accelerator is just the first step of the journey. Um, really, um, we continue to connect them to each other, but also connect them globally to um, other women founders, black founders, underrepresented founders, and other programs that we've done, um, maybe not accelerators, but other initiatives that we've done on a global scale. I've hosted events for our women founders, for instance, um, with women founders in the APEC region, in the Europe region, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And it's really cool to be able to continue to connect them because these founders oftentimes don't see many other founders like themselves, particularly outside of these uh, the hubs, right? So really being able to connect them to, to both share resources, but also share learnings and also just share experiences. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And this diversity of perspectives in the startup, in the tech startup environment, I think is really fascinating. And that leads me to some questions around tech and AI as it relates to these startups that I wanted to ask you. And so, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you focus on tech startups that work with AI and machine learning and how to think about data. And it has been on my mind whether is it really ever too soon to think about AI and data when you are starting or founding a startup? Do you immediately have an understanding of what your data is and what its potential is? Or is it something that you think needs to evolve over time, especially in the growth stage? How would you recommend approaching that idea of using AI on your data in, in that new startup environment or thinking about collecting data? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's never too soon to start thinking about it. Um, one thing I will say before I kind of answer is that I do think a lot of startups prematurely say that they're using AI and machine learning when maybe they're just looking at trends or maybe they just have some interesting um, manual processes to kind of help push their solutions through. But I do think as they collect data, they will reach a level or a stage in which um, machine learning and AI is something that they might want to consider. So I think there are important things to think about with respect to how are you collecting data? What data are you collecting? And, and more importantly, in my opinion, are there any kind of higher level ethical questions that you need to think about with respect to the solution that you're building or the potential solutions that you could build? Um, I, I know that a lot of companies don't know what challenges their, their, their solutions will create um, with respect to ethics and with respect to ethical questions um, until it's too late. So starting to think about that ahead of time and also think about inclusivity with respect to both your data, but also your, your teams, right? Because um, inclusive teams and inclusive product design processes and inclusive customer insights, those things are, are what lead to inclusive products in the long run. But if you don't have those factored in institutionally into your company, then you could run into these problems later. It's really hard to retroactively put in processes around inclusion uh, with respect to your product development process. So if you haven't thought about that ahead of time, then um, you're setting yourself up to do a lot of work later. Um, so I would say it's, it is too early sometimes to, to call yourself an AI machine learning company for sure. Yes, I definitely agree with you. I think that certainly from the data collecting perspective, it's important to really think of what your core value add is and your mission is and what value you can derive from that data and collect as much of it as you can now so that you have it. Because not only, and I agree with you that probably the, the ethical journey that you have to take in order to, to converge on whether what you're doing is right and how you're doing it, but also from a technical perspective, it's not like you can you know, decide in, in two quarters from now, let me just turn on AI. There's a lot of questions that go around 
what is your data set? What are your research questions that you're asking that are they the correct research questions for that data set? How are the answers that you get going to give you actionable results that will add value? Those are all questions that take many iterations of experimentation to get to. And so it's not something that you want to wait a year to collect data and then start thinking about it. It's something that might be worth thinking about, starting to think about now. And albeit, like you said, startups maybe don't have the resources to really put a lot of thought into it right off the bat, but it's definitely something to keep in mind uh, sooner rather than later. For sure. Um, and one thing I would add on that as well is I think a lot of startups and a lot of companies exclude potential addressable customer markets, right? Because they haven't actually thought about, they haven't thought, of it, um, yeah. thought about it, right? And I think there's some things that come through kind of having inclusive data sets and thinking about having inclusive data sets and collecting our data. Sometimes you just discover an untapped uh, market or a new customer right. base that you wouldn't have even thought of before, right? right? And we, we've seen that even at Google, right? With some of our products. And I think um, that is why now, and candidly, of course, we are larger and can invest in this, but why now we try to, even from the start of the product development process, um, make sure that we are collecting data from a lot of different potential customer populations so that you can identify what is the most attractive um, use case or, or population or demographic for this product that you're trying to build or are there small tweaks you can make to the product earlier on to make it more inclusive and have an even bigger addressable market which again as a startup is great right because when you're talking to investors to be able to have a bit larger addressable market and a larger potential customer base is what can get you more funding and can get you the resources right. you need Right, and I, I think that's interesting. We've seen that in distillery as well, where um, in terms of running customer segmentation, using machine learning algorithms, clustering the data, not knowing what's in there, but clustering it and seeing what comes out, the different clusters and the different subpopulations that sometimes are surprising that you didn't even realize that this subpopulation was a consumer base that perhaps is a growth market for you, perhaps is a, a way that you can engage with customers that you never even thought about before. But that is based on the assumption that you have all of those representations in the taxonomy and in the data that you're looking at. And that is a great point in terms of bias in the data that you might have and how you think about inclusivity in that data. Do you, what are your thoughts about that or experience in terms of types of bias in data or products that you find that startups deal with early on and how, how to address it? Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? It's always a balance for founders, I think. For founders, you're always balancing trying to <laughs> get to that next milestone or move as quickly as possible, while also trying to do the um, the what we were just highlighting in terms of like the, the responsible uh, the responsible path of inclusive data sets and inclusive teams, et cetera. And I think there's no I would say like rule of thumb, <laughs> but I'd say at the same time um, we've seen I've seen time and time again, even at Google, like I said, um, teams completely alienate or leave out a potential customer base because they were not thinking about the bias within their data set. Mm -hmm. So a good example is thinking about some of our uh, uh, ML vision capabilities and with images and being able to recognize food types, for instance, is a good example, where they didn't realize that in a lot of their early data sets, they omitted food types that were not necessarily North American centric and then were misidentifying foods of, for instance, uh, Southeast Asian descent or, or Eastern European, and then completely missing out on those markets as a whole, because those pro the, the tool itself just was not good at identifying that. And you think about that with respect to autocorrect. Um, it's a good example where 
imagine a situation in which it's autocorrecting your name <laughs> or, or repeating every day, every single day. <laughs> I have to fix autocorrect with my name. Exactly, and then you unintentionally alienate these consumers and sometimes never get them back. Right? I feel and, alienated. Yeah, I mean, in a uh, and, and luckily, in, in your case, probably with Apple, you, there are probably many other reasons why you stay. But if you're a startup <laughs> and this is your first, you don't have that brand equity then you can lose a consumer for who knows how long yeah, because true. you alienated them from the first moment. Yeah. So I think, it, again, it's a careful balance because you're not going to be able to really collect data from every single, as a startup, from every single potential uh, customer demographic from the start. But I think it is always a question that you need to be asking yourself, like, are we doing the best that we can within the means that we have yeah. to have um, these inclusive practices? Because again, there's, it's not just the right thing to do, but it's also in many cases, the right thing to do from a business. Standpoint, yeah. It makes right? business sense. At the yeah. very least to recognize what your blind spots are. Yeah. You may not be able to address all of them, yeah. but, in, but maybe in some default way to yeah. address them, but to, to recognize what they are. Yeah. Funny enough. I also, I want to add, you mentioned that, you know, sometimes startups may prematurely claim that they're AI while they're still kind of trying to figure themselves out and develop it. And I guess there's, no problem with a little healthy dose of fake it till you make it as long as you're on that path to doing it but no shade there are you know mature vendors out there that also claim that they're ai but when you kind of look under the hood yeah. you realize that it's not really the case and yep. i think that just because they ran a regression once mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they're doing ai for sure i think it's tough though right because especially when talking about underrepresented founders i often have to ask myself well why are they needing to say that they're doing AI or right. why are they point. needing? So if if I'm a traditionally underfunded, underrepresented founder, the fake it to you make it thing is is sometimes a necessity. Absolutely. Right? And, yeah. and I think it's, and that's why it's like hard for me to I have like the general rule of thumb and kind of general sentiments because I think it is so nuanced and there are so many cases where sometimes it feels icky, but sometimes it feels necessary. And I think um, I think about some of my founders who have not had access. The reason they don't have AI right now is because they haven't had access to the Google engineers or the support right. until they get to my program. Right. And then we're helping them change that narrative or change the reality from fake it till you make it to actually have make made it. it. Yeah. In many ways, I respect that they were able to make it that far on oh, just the faking it, right? Absolutely. And I think, um, and to your point, yes, when, when it's a large company, like if, if it's a large established company with the resources and things like that, for sure. Like the, I think it, there, I, I oftentimes roll my eyes when it's like, for, they're just using it as a buzzword to get some customers right. engaging with their product. But oftentimes with startups, again, it's, it's, it's particularly startups who have, who come from traditionally underfunded and under-resourced communities. I think it's a little nuanced for me and I tend to honestly advise them to fake it until they make it because in some ways, it's the only way to even get the attention because the, the investors are also still just as captivated by the buzzwords as right. the consumer. And right, it works. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So you, you bring up a really interesting point about having these resources around for these underrepresented startups and founders in, in terms of having the help and the support they need to grow and to get more mature and robust in their thinking and in their offering. And I think that for me ties back to an article that you recently published on medium.com that talked about how to not only be an ally, but to be an accomplice. 
Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that and how that ties into this very issue in the tech world? Yeah, so I'll start with the meaning. I mean, just think about it, right? Like ally, allyship, we've had allies in even in the political sense, allyship is a term that's thrown around. But one for me, the big key difference in an ally, right? So allies, they're supportive. They will give you the thumbs up emoji. They will post the black square. They will uh, pass along the email uh, to kind of get you that intro. But oftentimes how I distinguish allyship from accompliship um, is that allies tend to be supportive when it is in their, also in their own best interests, right? Or, or they're also benefiting from that. But oftentimes what we see throughout history is that when, it, when there are conflicts of interest, um, oftentimes allies go silent um, or oftentimes allyship is uh, fickle, right? And I think accomplices are, or for me at least, the, the difference is that an accomplice is oftentimes acting in that unwavering support and their partner in crime in that in in that action, right? So they're in they're they're getting their hands dirty just as much as you are, and sometimes in your absence, right? Sometimes they're doing it, and oftentimes and should be doing it when it's not even in their own best interest. Right, when it's not convenient. When it's not convenient, and when they're when sometimes it's inconvenient, right? Um, or or more so, it's um, against their own interests, right? Because they could be doing something else that is helping them, uh, helping themselves versus helping someone else, right? Um, and right, they're, even, they're not getting praised or any sort of gratitude for the work that they're doing. Yeah, or choosing a harder path. For sure. A harder path at a time in which they could have chosen a path that also right. gave them some sort of personal recognition or benefit, right? And I think what we need more so right now are accomplices who are doing things that are beyond just celebrating and beyond just vocal support, but are actually, even in the absence of the communities that they're trying to support, doing the work, right? And um, whether it be in partnership or again, doing it on their own and their own of their own volition. And I think I would love to see more accomplices. I actually spoke to a founder a while ago at this point where she was like, I don't look for allies. I look for accomplices because at the end of the day, sure, it's great to have your support, but it's even better to have you doing the work some of the work yeah yeah. doing a lot of the work right and doing just as much work as i like it's i often look around at the initiatives that are popping up with that are supporting either racial equity or gender equity in particularly in the startup ecosystem and although i'm really excited to see these I often feel a little bit disappointed that most of the time the people at the helm of these initiatives are representatives of that community themselves. So oftentimes the community is doing work for the community with the support and the allyship of the broader uh, ecosystem, but they're still doing a lot of the work, right? Um, and, And candidly, I would love to see more people doing the work without needing to rely on members of the community to be driving it. Yeah, I think that's a really, really excellent point. And I always think back to, I don't remember where I read or or heard this talked about where it really does at the end of the day behoove the power majority to make the steps for progress. And you can't rely on the people that are being oppressed to keep pushing for that. Just case in point, right? It was LBJ that had to sign the, the, the Civil Rights Act and to, to, make that happen. It couldn't have been anybody else, but somebody in the power majority pushing to make those steps. So it's important for those of us in the tech community that are part of the power majority to help move the needle on 
inclusivity. And I think recognize that I think the hesitancy sometimes to give to 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 be a optimist or to be a glasses half full perspective. I think the hesitancy is usually that a lot of people are just afraid to misstep or make mistakes. And I yeah. think it's not necessarily the the lack of willingness. It's not necessarily the lack of desire to drive an initiative or do this extra project on my own volition um, without the, without necessarily for a community that I don't necessarily represent. It's a, it's a, a fear of mis, misstepping or fear of perception. or and, and I think what I hope to see is that people are more willing to take risks and understand that even as a member of a specific community doing work for that community, I or whoever else is also taking a risk because <laughs> just because you are representing me doesn't mean you fully understand every single member of that community and the needs that they have. And, and, and honestly, I take, uh, I can't compare and contrast the Black Founders program that I did with the Women Founders program that I did. Um, Black Founders program that I did though, even in running that program, I'm not representative of the founder that has never been to Silicon Valley is has not had the same luxury of going to MIT or Stanford, right? And and I'm also worried, right? I'm also worried that I'm making decisions and, and assumption about them. So I think people need to understand that it's okay to to try. Like I'd rather you have a bias to action, right? Than than to right. to right. be paralyzed by um, in the decision process or in uh, by inaction because you were scared of misstepping or scared of perception, right? Yeah, and the perception that any community is a monolith is a perpetuation of the very problem. Oh, for sure. And it's very dangerous. Um, and it's dangerous, yes. Um, I agree. And I think I have lots of thoughts on that. But I will. I will <laughs> Me I, too. For all of the different, in terms of intersectionality, all the yeah. different communities that I belong to that I know are, are just so diverse. Oh, for sure. And I think I will say, to have empathy again for the for for those accomplices in the room that I even in launching the Women Founders Program, I remember feeling a lot of hesitancy and a lot of nervousness around launching a program as um, someone who identifies as a man for a community that I try my best to empathize with, but I can never fully empathize with because I'm not a I've never been a member of that community, right? And to yeah. and to and there are assumptions that had to be made because I was launching a program for a community that I didn't represent, right? And I think um, again it was. It, I, I definitely felt that fear of misstepping, but at the end of the day, those are the types of accomplices that we need more. Um, and that, those are the types of programs that we need because if we rely on only black people in tech or women in tech to, to lead programs for black people in tech and women in tech, then we're gonna have a finite number of programs because that is the issue, right? We don't have enough black members of the tech community or women in tech, particularly in uh, kind of the climate that we're in right now. And, yeah. yeah. I've had experiences where I, you know, being a gay Jewish man myself, and I was the only gay person at that company. And so it was like, oh, well, you're gay, so blah, blah, blah. And, and trying to be inclusive or, or thoughtful about it. And I'm like, well, and, but then thinking that I somehow represent the community oh, yeah. to them. And I'm like, well, but I don't represent, I don't even represent my group of friends. Like, <laughs> we're so diverse that yeah. like, it's not, like you said, it's nice that they think that way, that they want to have the bias to action, yeah. but you can't think of any of these communities as a monolith. And it's okay to not necessarily cater to everybody yeah. within that community, because even within the community, like you said, there are disagreements, there are differences of opinion. Oh, for sure. And going back to your point about data sets and, and product development, this yes. is why you can't rely on just one thing. You can't rely on you having, again, 
just one representative of a community on the product team, <laughs> or you can't rely on just having interviewed a couple members of that community for your data sets and your user, your user um, interviews, right? You kind of have to have it ingrained throughout the entire process in multiple uh, facets because no one individual or, or even 10 individuals is going to be fully representative. That is such an excellent point. And it is a compliment to, and I think it really underscores and highlights and, and sharpens an opinion that I've had about that, where we've had discussions at Distillery about what it means to have a diversity of opinions and perspectives in the work team and how that would look like. And, you know, in terms of hiring for the teams, in terms of what the data looks like, in terms of what the outputs look like. One of the things that I've always been passionate about in those terms is that it's not enough to hire a token member of said community to have on the team and check a box and say, look, we have it. Because to me, my viewpoint on it was more about that you need to have communities of each of these ideally of each of these uh, uh, communities, <laughs> yeah. a community of these communities from the perspective of being able to be your true self at work mm -hmm. and, and not having to hide who you are or edit who you are, but having a sense of other people that look like you and who are like you, but also like you said, to have even a more clear, diverse collection of opinions because one person doesn't represent any said community. Yeah. To balance that though, you can't let that intimidate you if you're right. starting from scratch. And I think like a lot of people, it's a process. A lot of people are scared to take the first step because it's indicative of how much, how many more steps they have yes. to take. And they, yes. um, and they think, think about what they haven't done yet. Exactly. And I think you, um, you, again, going back to bias action, like companies, startups, people in general, um, have a bias action and start, right? Um, and get started and just recognize that you still have far, you're never going to be done because um, you could have you could have hundreds or thousands of representatives of a community. And just like you said, you still might be missing a perspective. Right. Um, so. Which is okay. You can't have everything. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to get to that point. It sounds like your job right now is very fascinating and a lot of fun. And it sounds like it's something that you enjoy doing and that you find fulfilling. Do you have any advice? What would you say to somebody who is kind of starting out in tech or in the analytics or data industry um, in terms of how to find that fulfilling career or that path to doing something that is fulfilling to them. Yeah. So I can speak from my experience, at least. Um, I'm a huge advocate of literally writing it down. Um, and I think, um, and, and maybe that's... You know maybe, who else is? Dolly Parton. No, I Just mean, putting it I was, out there. I was going to say, maybe that is not very Gen Z of me. <laughs> but I think like um, in terms of, for me, honestly... Uh, going back to the Venn diagram is like find your Venn diagram, but also find the center of it. Like think about, I often, the first question I, I tell people is think about what you do in the absence of someone forcing you to do it. Um, think of what are the extracurriculars that you do, even as working professionals, all of us do things um, in our free time, um, whether it be host a podcast or whether it be boarding founders or volunteering, where, where do you spend your time or even at work? What are the things that you get done? without someone having to micromanage you or, or kind of tell you it needs to be done by a certain time and use that as indicative of things that you enjoy doing, right? And that you're intrinsically motivated to do. Now, then reconcile that list <laughs> with what are you good at, right? So are you doing it um, and are you actually getting positive feedback in terms of, of, of how, how good you are at it or do you see potential there? And then lastly, after you've reconciled those two things of what, what you're good at and what you enjoy doing, 
will someone pay you for it, right? And I like to challenge people. A lot of people don't realize that it's often a matter of just like casting a wide net in terms of thinking about how and be, being a little bit creative in terms of how do you adapt it to something that someone will pay you for. This day and age, I, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of something that someone isn't getting paid for somewhere. True. Right. Um, whether it be the, the what was the woman on YouTube who gets paid for smashing her face into bread, like everyone is getting paid for something these days, right? Influencing something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So it's really a matter of of making that list right and starting to think and and ultimately there probably will be multiple things that are in those buckets and then starting to cross them out and experiment right i think i think particularly for people at earlier stages of career i think there's this rush to find yes. that sweet spot yes. um before before you're before you're 22 before you're 25 before you're 30. and i think what people don't realize is that there is no rush and, and also you can make incremental you could take incremental steps to, to slowly pushing those circles of the Venn diagram closer and closer to one another and expanding that center versus trying to start with a bullseye, right? And I think um, for me, that has been my path. And I think I've, getting, I've gotten closer and closer and ultimately will probably continue to get more, be able to describe my ideal career with more specificity and more details because I'm able to continue to push those things together and experiment. So we're at the part now where we're going to talk a little bit about like emerging trends and things that are new that are exciting. What are you excited for in 2021 in the inclusive innovation space? I'd say, honestly, I'm generally a little bit cynical of humanity. Um, <laughs> a little so real, bit. I, I, like to, I like to say realistic, but I think some people would say cynical. But I think um, something that's been really exciting for me, honestly, in the recent weeks is that I, if you had talked to me back in last June or last July, I was pretty skeptical of how long the attention would be placed on inclusive practices, inclusive or inclusivity broadly, um, as well as equity, and was kind of worried that kind of come the election or come winter, people would start forgetting about inclusivity with respect to innovation or with respect to entrepreneurship. So um, what I'm most excited about in 2021, honestly, is, is to see that a lot of new funds, new programs, new new accomplices are popping up and continue to pop up. And the momentum that we're seeing with respect to programs focused on equity, programs focused on really thinking about AI principles, programs focused on supporting entrepreneurs and thinking about um, how do they, I, I saw this announcement this week actually from Microsoft about the voice AI tech that they're thinking about developing around after someone dies, being able to kind of continue to keep them alive, at least oh, well. their voice alive. Um, and that sounds creepy. <laughs> sounds creepy, but all those things are coming. I'm a huge Black Mirror fan. And it's funny what I think I like about the Black Mirror show is that nothing's that far off from like no where we that's are very very true right and i think most of the technology is honestly not that far off what is worrisome about it is what i mentioned earlier is that the technology has evolved but i don't think we've evolved yes. enough to to responsibly handle that technology and so i get really excited when i see these conversations continuing because i think honestly um, my fear is that we get to a point where due to negligence or due to it not just being trendy people just haven't thought about these things, had these conversations, these difficult conversations ahead of kind of the technology getting there. Because there's, a, the, there's some awesome tech, where there, especially- There's awesome tech, but it, it can end up being creepy. And just for the record, I wanna state here officially that I was very creeped out by the posthumous Whitney Houston live quote unquote tour that I just, I mean, was that necessary? Yeah, I mean, but 
with holograms. So, For those who don't know, there was a whole tour of Whitney Houston holograms singing her songs and it looked like it was a live performance, but it was not. While not necessary, again, a little bit cynical uh, of, of people and humanity, but thinking about it this way, if the tech exists and there is a way to make profit over the tech, then it's coming. It right? is coming. And, and you I, are right. That <laughs> it is. It behooves us as a society for the ethics to catch up. Oh, 100%. More than behooves us. It's like literally just critically important <laughs> because for our because survival. Because if we don't think about it, then it's just going to happen. And yeah. then think about it as putting yourself in the shoes of the entrepreneur, right? If you are sitting on tech that you know will be the next unicorn and maybe a little bit worried about the ethics of it, but know that people will buy it. Human nature, people, that entrepreneur is probably going to release that product, right? Oh, for sure. and, I, and I think we we need to both as a startup ecosystem, but also a tech ecosystem, need to understand that that will happen and really start mitigating the risk associated with that. Yes. Although I want to say for the record that an army of cloned Whitney Houston's I don't think is a bad thing. I mean, just think of the harmonies. Yeah, but then you start with Whitney. But where do, where do you end? Uh, <laughs> where do you an end? army of clones and allies. I mean, exactly. There is an audience for all okay. of this stuff, right? So at the end of the day. You have a point. Yeah, you got stand correct. You got to think about it. Jason, thank you so, so much. This has been fascinating. And um, I hope it was as enjoyable for you as it was for me. I mean, I love talking. So yes. <laughs> awesome. So thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening in. And catch you next time on the next episode of Who's Your Data? Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to who'syourdatanow at gmail.com. That's who'syourdatanow, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data? Who's Your Data?